Amen. Well, thank you. It is wonderful to be with you. Um, I, I don't quite know what Steve told you about me that made you all sit six rows back, but <laughs> I don't spit too much, I don't think. Um, but it is great to be here, so thank you so much for inviting me. Um, although I guess actually most of you didn't get a say in inviting me, so uh, if I am a severe disappointment to you, I'm very sorry, but take it up with Steve for his awful choice of bad guest speaker. Um, but it is great to be here, and as Steve said at the beginning, I'm part of Christchurch London. Uh, we meet in four different places in central London, and we do have a group of um, mainly families who live in Sutton, who've been part of us for years, um, but have moved to this area, this wonderful area. Um, I can see why, having driven through it this morning. Uh, but actually, have found the distance between where they live and where they worship to be quite a challenge, unsurprisingly. And so we said to them recently, why don't you travel into us a little less frequently and spend some time building community, getting to know those who don't yet know Jesus, and hopefully helping them to explore faith. And as they have done that over the last few months, we've seen many, many people who would never have come to explore faith with us, uh, sitting in people's homes, doing an alpha course, talking about questions of faith, coming to know Jesus. And we actually got to baptize our first new believer from Sutton recently. So it's really exciting. We don't know what God is doing. So <laughs> this was not part of our plan. At the moment, there sort of meeting to worship every now and then about once a month or so. We'll see what happens. We'll see what God does. But it feels like God is doing something in this area, not through us. <laughs> We're small fry, but through you and through other churches like you who've been faithfully working and praying and worshiping here for years. So, And it seems like God's hand is on you as well. I mean, this is an incredible building, an incredible opportunity to serve this great part uh, of our country. So well done to you. And it's a privilege to be here on the same team, partnering with you, uh, helping many people come to faith and experience that freedom that we have found in Christ. So it's great to be here. Um, and this morning, I am going to speak on the theme of busyness. Uh, I understand that um, as a church, you are about to start looking at the theme of um, Sabbath, of rest over the summer. And so I want to kind of wear you out before you get into that series. And I want to set the scene with a few stats. If I could have the next slide, please. Brilliant. That's all fairly self-explanatory, I imagine. Um, no. So the average British worker works 8.7 hours a day. That's roughly 8.30 to 6.12 with a lunch break of an hour. The average German or Italian leaves work one hour earlier than you. Americans work one hour a day more than we do. They typically do 47-hour weeks. It wasn't long ago that American futurists predicted that one of the greatest problems that people would have in the coming generations was too much time on their hands. In 1967, testimony before a U.S. Senate subcommittee claimed that by 1985, the average work week would be just 22 hours. They couldn't have been more wrong. In 1967, the annual work hours for the average American was 1,716 hours. By the year 2000, that had gone up to 1,878 hours. That's an increase of 162 hours a year. If you want an easier workload, you should move to Norway, where they work on average 14 weeks... That's not application for this sermon, by the way, all move to Norway. They work on average 14 weeks fewer per year than their American counterparts. Now, what's interesting is that actual contracted working hours have barely increased in the last 50 years. But what has changed is our ability to work beyond those contracted hours. 
60% of people say that they check um, work emails at home or on holidays. That wasn't even possible just a few years ago before internet and smartphones made it possible. In fact, actually, it wasn't too long ago where just staying up late at night was a challenge. I mean, it wasn't until the 1900s that many houses had lights and were able, therefore, people to stay up later when they could otherwise have been sleeping. Technology has changed our ability to work and to make our lives busy. And this has had a knock-on effect on families. Let me think for a moment about time off. UK workers um, get 28 days holiday a year, including bank holidays. Germans get 41, Italians 44, Spanish 46, and the French get 47. So if you've ever wondered why the British typically don't like the French, (laughs) there is your answer. I'm kidding if you are French. I'm sure you're lovely. Fewer than half of UK workers use their full holiday entitlement. The average British lunch hour lasts 27 minutes. The average British worker does the equivalent of eight weeks unpaid overtime every year. That's like the equivalent of working January and February for free. Travel for work is a massive deal. A study recently said that the average UK commute is around 38 minutes. Actually, one study recently said that in London, the average commute is 73 minutes a day. And the same study said that commuters experience greater levels of stress than fighter pilots and riot police. And if you commute to work as a fighter pilot or riot police person, like... I salute you, your threshold is through the roof. It is no wonder, therefore, that this has had a huge effect on people's well-being, their physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual well-being. And we have seen a significant increase in stress-related problems. Over 8 out of 10 British workers feel their quality of life has been harmed by work demands. 1 out of 5 men has said they have visited doctors with work-related stress. 60% of people say that our workload is sometimes out of control. One in five people say we feel that way most of the time. The need for sleep can vary from person to person from between six to ten hours, but still the average that we need is eight hours. The average that people get is seven hours and four minutes, which is two hours down on the average people got in 1910. Three quarters of us go to work while ill, despite studies saying that if you do that, you double the risk of heart-related conditions. In fact, I think you can see the shift that has happened by just thinking about the way advertisers talk about sickness. It used to be the case that you would see TV ads where people would be wrapped up in bed, kind of cozy, drinking some kind of cup of something or other, and the message was, rest and take our product, you'll be back to work in no time. You don't see that at all these days. Now the adverts of the people of turning up unexpectedly at work, having taken some medication so they can power on through. And the message is, you don't have to stop anymore. You can keep on going. 70, hi. <laughs> 72% of managers are criticized by friends and family for spending too much time working. The number of people who say they always feel rushed has jumped 50% between the 60s and the 90s. I even read one anecdote when researching this talk of a lady who moved to the United States and started introducing herself to people as busy because the first thing she heard when she met people was, hi, I'm busy, and she thought it was a traditional (laughs) greeting. We have a busyness problem. We have a busyness problem in our world. We are busy people living in a busy part of a busy country, a busy world, at a phase in time where busyness is considered, I think, a virtue. 
Many people think it is a good thing, an honorable thing, a respectful thing to be busy. And many of us, if we are honest, probably feel exhausted by those stats, but actually feel more exhausted by the life that those stats represent. And few of us ever stop. Few of us feel we ever have time to stop and ask ourselves, is this healthy? Is this the way life is meant to be? And of course, these stats only account for work things. Add in other stuff like leisure, hobbies, recreation, church events, family life, raising kids with all that includes of school runs and uh, feeds in the middle of the night and all that sort of stuff. We are busy, busy people. And few of us ever take time to stop and say, is this really what God wants for me? And so this morning, if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to Mark chapter 1. The words will be up on the screen. I want to look at what the Bible might have to say about the subject of busyness. And just as a caveat before I do that, sometimes as a preacher, you get a luxury of preaching on a subject that you're like, I've got this nailed. Like, I am an expert on this. And particularly when you're a guest speaker and you go places, usually you bring out your best sermon, the sermon you've got nailed more than any other. This is not my best sermon. It's not a bad one, but it's not my best sermon. It's one that I preach to myself as well as preaching to you because I know I live in the same world you do. I know busyness is a challenge. And so as we look at this today, um, here are just a couple of books which you may actually find helpful if you feel like this is an issue for you. Uh, Four books that I have found helpful. The first is Simplify by Bill Hybels, a very, very practical, useful book. Um, The uh, worst title, worst cover in the world, but The Busy Christian's Guide to Busyness by Tim Chester is a very good, very helpful, very practical book. I'd highly recommend it. If you feel like, no, come on, I am too busy to even read a book, well, there may be a problem, but this is the shortest of the three books, Crazy Busy by Kevin DeYoung. Absolutely fantastic, challenging book. And then here on the right, one which I've only read in the last couple of weeks and I'm rereading already, uh, Andy Crouch's The TechWise Family is a fantastic new book on the, pr- the proper place of technology in healthy family life. I'd highly recommend that. It's causing my wife and I to have some great conversations and make some radical changes at the moment. But anyway, let's get to Mark chapter 1. It says this, As soon as Jesus and the disciples left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who were ill and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so that I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons." Now, this passage comes really early on in Jesus' ministry. He's about 30 years old at this point, and life is really starting to ramp up and get busy. Jesus had a lot going on. In fact, Mark's gospel makes this really clear. If you read Mark's gospel, the word immediately comes again and again and again and again and again and again and again. It's a breathless gospel. It's like he's doing something, then he's over somewhere else, immediately moving on to the next thing. In fact, despite being the shortest of the gospels, Mark uses the word immediately 42 times 
events compared to seven in Luke and four in John. It's a breathless account of the activity of Jesus. We're told here that it was after sunset when the people brought the sick to Jesus. Now, in these days, they had no lights and people would often go to bed way earlier than we do. So when they come here, they're not interrupting Jesus during his Netflix time. They're interrupting him during his sleep time. Jesus is probably in bed at this point. He says the whole town gathered at the door. This wasn't even Jesus' door. He had come to heal this lady and now stayed with some friends. And then the entire town rock up at this house where Jesus is staying in temporary accommodation, bang on the door, wake up the whole house and say, come on out and heal our people. By my reckoning, this was still the Sabbath, the day of rest, when Jesus gets up and heals many people. I don't know about you, I'm not good when I get woken up unexpectedly. And yet here, Jesus, bed hair and all, gets up and he goes and heals many, many people. The first point is this. I think busyness is sometimes okay. I think busyness is sometimes okay. Sorry if that's not what you were expecting. If you were hoping, I'd just say, chill out, do nothing. I think busyness is okay because Jesus was busy. Jesus was active. The Bible is pro-work. Many of the ancient cultures uh, in the time that the Bible were written was actually very anti-work. They saw work as a curse. The Bible's not like that. It says that work is a good thing. We were created to work, to cultivate, to, to do good things. Actually, Proverbs is full of criticisms of those who are lazy. In, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, comparing himself to all the apostles, he says, I worked harder than any of them. He's not boasting. He's simply stating a fact. I don't think the Bible has a problem with working hard. In fact, Jesus here gets up in the middle of the night and works very hard. There are seasons where we have to work harder than others. And if you're sitting here today thinking, you don't know my job, you don't know the pressures I face, I understand. I don't want you to feel guilty it is okay at times to be busy. There are times where our diary will feel more full than at other times. There are times where we will have to work extra hours, put in the extra hours. We'll have to work more than we normally would. Don't feel guilty about that. Jesus was busy, but the difference is this. You don't get the impression that Jesus is mastered by busyness in the way that you and I often are. You don't get the sense that in the middle of all this activity, Jesus is being controlled against his will. He doesn't seem to be racking up an endless number of commitments just getting by on stimulants and coffee and lemsip. You know, Jesus seems to have a healthy approach to busyness. And if Jesus didn't live swamped by busyness, why do we? I think it's often because we fail to recognize things that Jesus did and we allow ourselves to be mastered by busyness and the lies it tells us. There is something at the root of busyness that keeps us captive. What is it? There's a well-known article from the New York Times called The Busy Trap. It says this, You've probably had to listen to a lot of people tell you how busy they are. It's become the default response when you ask anyone how they're doing. Busy, so busy, crazy busy. It is, the author says, pretty obviously a boast disguised as a complaint. And the stock response is a kind of congratulation. That's a good problem to have, or better than the opposite. Do you recognize any of that language? He says, busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy, completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. Ouch. I think the author is right. 
When I read that for the first time, I felt like he was describing me. I so often feel like busyness in my life is some kind of boast disguised as a complaint. And one of the reasons I think busyness is an epidemic in our world is because we want it that way. We actually think that busyness is essential to making us feel good about ourselves. I read that article and thought, I do that all the time. I so often have conversations with people at church or work or wherever where people say, how are you doing? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm good. Are you busy? Busy. Yeah, you know, it's just a busy season, but it's fine. It's okay. I'm getting by rather that way than the other way. And people go, oh, yeah, no, I understand. And, you know, it makes me feel good in a weird kind of way. I do feel busy a lot of the time. But actually, when I stop and I think, why do I tell people that? It's probably because I want people to respect me. And sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm really busy. Yeah, I'm working a lot. You're working long hours at the moment. And people go, oh, you're so amazing. I couldn't do that. And I think, yeah, I am amazing. You couldn't do that. And it makes me feel, I don't actually think that, but it makes me feel good to claim to be busy. And many of you, I am sure, do the same. I'm sure you do. And actually, now I've mentioned it, you're going to have really awkward conversations at the end of the service. You'll be like, how are you doing? I'm... Oh, I've got nothing to say to you anymore. I told a friend that I was coming to preach this sermon here, and he went, oh, that one that's ruined all my conversations because I can't tell people how busy I am anymore. To be clear, you can tell people you're busy if you're genuinely busy, but don't do so because you want to make yourself feel good. It's not healthy. It's not helpful. Here's a phrase I find simultaneously encouraging and terrifying. People will often come to me and say, hey, I, uh, I'm sorry to bother you. I know you're so busy, but I just wondered if X, Y, or Z... And whenever I hear people say that, two things happen. The first thing is this. I think, yeah, I am busy. I'm glad you've noticed. I must be doing something right. And then what goes in my head is this. I think now that you have acknowledged that I am so busy, if I do whatever favor you are asking of me, I'm going to seem like the most generous guy on earth. I'm going to seem like Jesus himself. I mean, that's pretty impressive. So I get this pride response, which quickly dissipates as I realize, hang on. What is it that I do and say that gives off the idea that I might be too busy for people? And that the only way they can get me to help them with whatever it is, is to first flatter me. That's not healthy. That's not helpful. And yet I experience those two responses, pride and guilt, so often when people say things like that to me. Kevin DeYoung, in his book, Crazy Busy, identifies a number of reasons why often we end up getting more busy than we ever think we should or would like to. And he says that the root of all of them is the issue of pride. He calls them the killer peas, which um, sounds like a great title for a children's cartoon, but (laughs) about vegetables that go around beating people. But no, they are all words that begin with the letter P. He says that these are reasons why people often get busy. Maybe you'll recognize a few of them. This is people-pleasing. We say yes to people because we don't want to let them down. Praise, we live for praise and we do things in order to make others think more highly of us. Performance evaluation. They don't all fit naturally into peas. I think he shoehorned a few of them in. But Performance evaluation. We regard ourselves so highly that we overrate our performance. We assume if I don't do this, no one else will be able to. Possessions. Sometimes we work ourselves into the ground in order to earn more and more, rather than working out how to live healthier lifestyles and making cuts elsewhere. Pity. People feel sorry for us when they see that we're busy, so we rack up busyness to get pity from people. Poor planning. Sometimes it's that we're bad at planning, or we don't consider planning to be a virtue, or we arrogantly think, I don't need to plan. 
and we suddenly get ourselves caught in busyness. Perhaps it's power. We stay busy so we can stay in control. And maybe the issue is that we don't actually trust others to do a good job without us. Perhaps it's perfectionism. We hold ourselves to too high a standard and therefore can never rest. Perhaps it's prestige. We keep pushing ourselves in order to become someone important. For our lives to matter, it's a hedge against emptiness. Do you recognize any of those in your life? When I read through that list, I recognized more than one of those in my life. I recognized most of those in my life. A few years ago, I was helping to run an event outside of London, and it required me to leave at a really early time in the morning, get the first train out. And so I was sitting on a train at ridiculous o'clock in the morning, and I thought, okay, I've got my coffee, I'm just ready to go. I thought, I'll do some emails while I'm waiting. So I got out my laptop, I'm working away at emails, just cleared my inbox, felt great about it. Over that two, the rest of that day, I received two emails that really made me think. The first was from a guy I know that came about 20 minutes later after I'd sent the first email. It said, hey, you're up early, no rest for the wicked, eh? Little wink emoticon. And I tell you what happened. I thought, ah, yeah, and someone's noticed. That's great, because this guy's clearly up early. This guy's clearly putting in the extra hours, and he's noticed I'm one of him. I'm the same as him. I kind of felt I got this level of respect, and in a weird kind of way, I felt good about it. I smiled. Later that afternoon, I got a second email. And if I felt at all proud of the first one, this one just pricked that stupid bubble of pride I had. Because it was from an older, wiser pastor who answered all my questions in the email. And then right at the end, he just said this throwaway line. He said, by the way, I couldn't help but notice the time you sent this email. I hope everything's okay with you. Rest well and take care of yourself. And in that moment, I suddenly felt so stupid that I had ever taken pride at sending emails at a stupidly early time in the morning. Because this guy cared enough about me not to massage my ego or think that busyness was something to be praised. He said, I want to make sure that you are healthy. I want to make sure that you're doing okay. This matters. Some of you may have found that a little bit, I don't know, intrusive or, or whatever, patronizing. But I found it really moving to know that someone cared enough not to just keep this lie going. Make me feel great about being busy. The reality was I was okay, and it was an exceptional circumstance, but it made me realize just how intertwined pride and busyness so often can be. It makes us feel good to be busy. The philosopher Peter Kreeft says this, we want to complexify our lives. We don't have to, we want to. We want to be harried and hassled and busy. Unconsciously, we want the very things we complain about, for if we had leisure... We would look at ourselves and listen to our hearts and see the great gaping hole in our hearts and be terrified because that hole is so big that nothing but God can fill it. What about you? To what degree is busyness a problem in your life? And to what degree might pride be a factor in why your diary gets so out of control? Do you find it difficult to say no to things and no to people And is that motivated out of actually unhealthy reasons? A desire to be thought of well, not to let people down. I think the reason why many of us get locked into busyness is because we buy a lie that is at the heart of busyness. And the lie is this, there's no way out. It's just the way it is. 
In fact, if you try and get out, you will let people down. People will think badly of you, so don't dare do it. The lie of busyness is that we just have to keep on going. It's the only way to maintain our status. And often, busyness itself stops us from seeing the lies that we are believing. I think Jesus faced the very same lies and the very same temptations. In fact, here in this passage, people are even trying to guilt trip him into busyness. He says, after a late night of healing the sick, Jesus gets up very early in the morning while it was still dark and he goes off to be alone. And then his disciples, the ones who know him best, come to him and say, everyone is looking for you. I mean, what a way to guilt trip the guy. If that was me, if people had come to me and say, everyone's looking for you, I'd be like, Oh, yeah, I'm a pretty big deal around here. Everyone is looking for me. Well, I better go and see my fans. Or, or I would feel, well, I can't let people down. I guess I've got to go. I've got to end my prayer time. I just go and talk to these people who come to look. I mean, they put in the effort. I don't want to disappoint them. But Jesus doesn't do either of those things. He goes, let's go somewhere else. <laughs> let's move on. People are coming to look for me. Let's go. Let's move on to the next village. People came looking for him. People came guilt-tripping him. Jesus said, I'm not having that. I'm not going to get sucked into this lie. I'm off. I'm moving on to the next place. He says, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there. That is why I have come. I think Jesus knew that he had not come to do everything. Jesus knew he could not deal with every person and every need in that moment. And every problem that came his way was not in that moment his problem. He didn't have to do everything. His identity didn't depend on it. He had his identity secure in the fact that he was the son of God. He didn't need to please people in order to build up his own identity. He rejected the lie of busyness. Let me tell you this. You cannot do everything. I'm sorry if that comes as news to some of you. You cannot do everything. You are not made to do everything. You cannot respond to every need, every concern, every problem that is so important to other people. It cannot be equally important to you. Everything can't. You do not have to watch every TV show that you absolutely have to watch. Your life will not fall apart if you don't read every must-read book. They are called must-read by publishers, not by God. You do not have to do everything. The world and the purposes of God do not depend on it. And if you find yourself guilt-tripped into busyness, that is not God's intention. Reject the lie of busyness. Jesus knew the reason he was there was to take the gospel, the good news about the kingdom of God that was going to be brought by his death and his resurrection, and take it to as many of the villages around as possible. And so when people come to him, he knows this is going to distract me from the thing I was sent to do. And so Jesus was able to say no to that because he had said yes to something greater. What are you made for? What is the thing God has made you to do? Because when you know that, it really helps you to say no to things that take you away from that. Now, some people I talk to and I say, what's the thing that you were made to do? And they're easily able to answer that, tell you the one thing that God has given them to do. You know, you talk to some people, maybe some of you feel like this, and they're like, I was put on the earth to do this, create this, restore this, uh, reform this, eradicate this. And when you know the one particular thing, it's really easy because it gives you a filter through which you can identify what you can say yes to and what you say no to. If you are saying yes to one big thing, it's easy to say no to the other things that distract you from that. 
But many of us don't live with a sense of one thing that we were put here to do. I don't, to be honest. But I can set myself goals, and you can as well. What is it over the next six months that I feel God wants me to do? What's the kind of person I want to become over the next year, or two years, or five years? And when you can say yes to that vision, it then helps you to be able to say no to anything that distracts you from the things God wants you to do and the person he wants you to become. Peter Drucker, the management consultant, used to say that it is not good enough to simply set priorities. We must also set posteriorities, he said. Not just the things that come at the top of our list, but the things that come at the bottom of our list. The things that we say, it will be nice to do that, but I am going to actively choose not to do that so that I can achieve the things at the top of the list. What are your priorities? What are your posteriorities, if I can put it like that? Jesus was able to say no because he first said yes. And I am sure there are times when people came to him and complained, where people talked about him behind his back and said, why did Jesus move on to that other village? Why didn't he stay here and meet every one of my needs before he went? What's so special about them? Maybe Jesus doesn't care about us. Maybe he doesn't think we're important enough. I am sure there are times when people talked about Jesus behind his back and maybe even to his face. And yet he knew he was not there to do everything. He was there to take the gospel to as many villages as possible. And because he'd said yes to that, he could say no when the people came to him. Kevin DeYoung says this, Jesus didn't do it all. This is a really freeing paragraph if you think about it. Jesus didn't do it all. Jesus didn't meet every need. He left people waiting in line to be healed. He left one town to preach in another. He hid away to pray. He got tired. He never interacted with the vast majority of people on the planet. He spent 30 years in training and only three years in ministry. He did not try to do it all, and yet he did everything God asked him to do. Do you know what you are saying yes to? Do you know what God's plan is for you the next six months, the next year, the next five years for your life. Until you know what you are saying yes to, you will never be able to say no to things that will take you off that course. There's loads more we could say, and maybe you'll cover some in the next uh, few weeks of sermons. Do check out some of the books I recommended. I'll happily chat to you at the end if I can help in any way. But I think there is something in this passage that gives us a clue as to how Jesus was able to reject that lie of busyness. It says this, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place and planned his day out, putting all his tasks and his to-do list on a matrix and weighing up which were the most important. (laughs) It doesn't say that. It says he prayed. Prayer was so central for Jesus. He spent time with God investing in that relationship that meant the most to him. If Peter Kreeft is right, that busyness is often a way of filling a hole in our lives that only God can fill, then the antidote to busyness is filling that hole with God. It's relationship with God. How is your relationship with him? In fact, you may be here exploring questions of faith. You may say, I don't have a relationship with him. I'm not even sure if he exists. That's great. I hope you find this to be a great place to wrestle with some of your questions. And if I can help at the end, I'd love to chat to you about any questions you have about faith. But if you are someone who has relationship with God, how is that relationship? How are you investing in it? Why are you filling your life with so much that that gets squeezed out? Might it be better to make room for God first of all 
so that that relationship becomes the thing that helps you to prioritize everything else. I'll be honest with you. I don't find prayer easy at all. I never have. It's something I have to work quite hard at. And the times where I find prayer hardest are the times where I feel really busy because I sort of feel like I'm sitting here and I'm talking to God, but God already knows what I'm thinking and that all these things to do wouldn't action be better. Like I could actually go and do these things rather than just praying about them. But it is in those moments where prayer feels hardest that it's most important because it's an act of trust. It's saying, God, I am going to act right now like the world doesn't rest on my shoulders. I give it to you. I trust you with my time. I trust you with my prayer. Martin Luther famously said this, work, work from morning until late at night. In fact, I have so much to do, I shall have to spend the first three hours in prayer. Now, to be clear, you don't have to spend three hours a day in prayer, nor do I spend three hours a day in prayer, nor actually does it have to be first thing in the morning, although that works for many people, it works for Jesus. But there's this sense, this counterintuitive sense, which I love. <laughs> Are you telling me I'm going on too long? Is that what's going on down here, daughter? Uh, there is this counterintuitive sense, which I love, which I think Jesus embodied, of knowing that actually when you are at your busiest, that's when you need prayer the most. Because prayer does two things that unpick the lie of busyness. The first is this. In prayer, we catch a glimpse of what God is doing. Heading off alone to pray was a common practice for Jesus. He did it when he had to choose his 12 disciples. He did it in the Garden of Gethsemane before he faced his biggest challenge at the cross. You get a sense that for prayer, uh, for Jesus, prayer opened his eyes as to what it was God wanted him to do in any given moment. In John 5, it says, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the father doing. How do you think Jesus saw what the father was doing? I think it's through prayer. Jesus got an idea of the priorities of God, which then shaped his own priorities. And I think that comes through prayer. Because in prayer, we get a glimpse of what God is saying to us and what he is wanting to do. Do you need to know what you should be saying yes to in order that you know what you should be saying no to? If so, ask God. Sometimes we come to prayer with a whole load of questions in our minds. And we can be like, God, I've got these problems, these questions, can you help me? And sometimes God will give us new answers like that. And we see things we've never seen before. Sometimes it doesn't happen like that. Sometimes it's not a case that God gives us new answers. He just reminds us for the like 10,000th time of answers he's told us before. I don't think Jesus got up this morning and thought, oh God, what am I meant to be doing with my life? And God said, I brought you here to share the gospel. And he's like, wow, new revelation. I think Jesus knew that already. And yet in that moment, God recenters him on what he has always known. This is your purpose. It hasn't changed. Keep going. Prayer does that. It recenters us. It refreshes us. In prayer, we get a glimpse of what God is doing. But perhaps Equally importantly, maybe more importantly, we get a glimpse of what God says about us when we come to him in prayer. If at the root of our busyness is a concern with what others think about us, then the antidote to that is reminding ourselves what God thinks about us. And when we pray, we remind ourselves that our value is not in what we do. God is not impressed by the number of hours we put in to anything <laughs> God doesn't give us respect when we earn it through busyness. God does not love us more the busier we are. He loves us as we've already celebrated because he is love and we are his children. When we pray, we also remember we are not made to do everything. 
God is way more capable than we are. And he did not make us to carry the world on our shoulders. That's why God puts us in community with others who are able to do things that we are not able to do ourselves. People who have different needs and skills and passions and abilities. We cannot meet every need as individuals. It's not even healthy to try. But when we come together as a body of people that God has drawn us into, together we are able to complement one another and heal many more needs in this world. We are not God. And when we pray, it reminds us of that. Psalm 46 says, Be still and know that I am God. And I think in that is an implicit counterbalance that when we are still, we also remind ourselves that we are not God. Be still and know that I am God. Also be still and know that you are not God. And when we pray, it does something in our hearts. It fills us with a sense of calling and vision and inner resolve to be able to withstand the lie of busyness. Now there is loads more that could be said, I am sure. And I really hope that as you think about rest over the next few weeks, you find that God gives you almost the more positive side of this talk. If this is about being busy and how not to be busy, there's actually a a long way to go to actually being not busy and resting in God. And I hope as you explore that, you find it really releasing. Do check out some of the books I've recommended. Come and talk to me at the end. I'd love to talk. Not that I have got all the answers, but I'd happily pray with you, talk with you, help you explore any questions if I can. But I think one of the great things that we can do right now, actually, is just recenter ourselves on God. And so maybe the band would like to come back up. We're going to sing a song. Uh, it's a song on time management. Uh, <laughs> no, there aren't that many of those, to be honest. There's a niche in the market. There you go. You could fill. But we're going to sing a song. You know, it almost doesn't matter what song we sing. It's about who we sing it to. And as we take a moment just to set our minds on God again, even the act of singing a song, which, to be honest... I don't want to do. Like, I don't like singing that much. (laughs) I do it because actually it glorifies God. It reminds me I'm not living for my own wants or desires. I'm living for him. And when we come and worship and pray, it gives us a moment to recenter ourselves on him, to remind ourselves of what we've already heard this morning. We're loved because he is love, not because we have done anything. And so I wonder actually if you will stand, and I'd love to pray for us. And there'll be an opportunity, I'm sure, uh, to pray more in depth, one-on-one, if you would like. But I'd love to just pray over us. And in fact, you may find it helpful, humor me, if you will, just to close your eyes. And you may find it useful to hold out your hands as a way of saying, Lord, I surrender my diary, my life, my priorities to you, and I'm ready to receive from you as well. And I wonder if you would just, in a moment of silence, just take a deep breath. Be still and know that he is God. Be still and know that you are not God. As you breathe in deeply, imagine God filling you afresh with his Holy Spirit. He'll do it right now. As you breathe in deeply, imagine being filled afresh with the Spirit who brings freedom and life. As you breathe out, imagine just breathing out the cares and worries, the weight that you've put on your shoulder, the lies that have entangled you.
Maybe some of you know that busyness has been a problem in your life. Maybe you know that at the heart of it has been pride or some of the things we've talked about this morning. It may do your heart good to confess that to God. Breathe it out now. Maybe some of you are struggling to identify what it is you should be saying yes to. Ask God in this moment. As you breathe in and receive more of his spirit, allow him to whisper to you. Perhaps you are going through a particularly busy time right now. As you breathe in, just allow his spirit to fill you and strengthen you with an inner resolve. Maybe you feel your relationship with him has grown stale. Again, ask him just for a fresh sense of his Holy Spirit to make you new. Come, Holy Spirit.